0: Let's just pray, Lord, we want you to speak to us tonight, and we want to listen, and so we pray that you would give us open hearts, open ears, and we pray that your word would come out with power, and that it would touch us, and that we would not leave our time in your word unchanged, and so we ask right now for your Holy Spirit to speak to us, and to equip us, and we ask knowing that that is in accordance with your will, and so knowing that you want to do it. And so we are excited to watch you teach us tonight. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we're wrapping up the book of Revelation, um, we've got two or three weeks left, and then we're going to start the whole book over. We'll be in the book of Genesis. We're going to start the Bible fresh. And I'm very excited about Genesis, but I'm also excited about Revelation as we're wrapping it up. But Revelation, we have said it every week, and we will continue to say it because it matters. The book of Revelation is a pretty straightforward book to understand if you can understand one thing, and that is that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, singular. Chapter 1, verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a book of revelations. It is not a book of primarily about the Antichrist, or the mark of the beast, or the, you know, the number 666, or the seven seals, or the seven bowls, or the seven trumpets, or the seven thunders, or you know, the four living creatures, or <clears throat> any of those things. It's a book about Jesus Christ revealing himself to the world. And if you understand that, then everything else comes into play. And so all of a sudden, it's not really this this vast book of mysteries that we can't really understand unless you have the special knowledge or go to the the special conference. It's a book of, well, okay, I understand that the book is about Jesus Christ explaining really who he is and what he's going to do. And in that sense, okay. So we understand that. We understand from chapter 1, verse 18... There's a basic outline of the book that the Lord gives to John, who's the author. He says, write things which you've seen, which is chapter one up to that point. The things which are, which is chapters two and three, what we know as the church age, and then things which will take place after this. And that is the idea of after the era of the church because we talked about this back when we were in that chunk that basically what is happening right now is we live in what's known as the church age where the primary move of the Holy Spirit on earth is through the church. And that will come basically to an end when the Lord raptures the church out of the way. He's going to remove the church, and we will be caught up to heaven with Christ. We'll be with him in heaven during the Great Tribulation period. And at the end of the Great Tribulation, Christ will come back and actually touch down on earth. And we're going to get to that tonight, Lord willing. So what we've been covering in the the list of things that John writes about that are after this or after these things is what we know as the Great Tribulation. It's a seven-year period of the Lord judging the earth, reclaiming the earth out of the ownership of Satan, and making a delineation between people. And there's going to be, you know, it's pretty clear in, in the text that there's going to be a massive revival. There's going to be, a, John says, a multitude that he couldn't count of people who get saved in the Great Tribulation. So there will be a mass evangelism of the earth and a mass conversion, but there will also be a hardening of people's hearts as they refuse to to turn to the Lord. And what will happen is the Lord will basically divide the world into two very uh, polar camps of people who say, I will follow Jesus Christ no matter what, even if it cost me my life. And it, in most cases, will. And people who say, I will not follow Jesus Christ no matter what it cost me. And so that's where we've been watching this happen for the past several weeks, and now we are getting to truly the very, very last stretch. And so last week, we read in... Uh, verse chapter 16, verse 17, that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And then in verse 19, about halfway through it says, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl of judgment into the air and the Lord says, okay, this is, this is it. This is the, the finale. And with that, he says, now Babylon is given the cup of the wrath of God to drink. And that is where we find ourselves tonight. So we're going to read about the judgment of Babylon. And it's important before we do that to kind of clarify in what is Babylon. And so we think of Babylon, particularly in Scripture, generally as the Babylonian Empire. We think of Nebuchadnezzar. We think of uh, Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace, but Babylon is is actually not exclusively an empire or a city, and really our first reference to what we know as Babylon is in Genesis chapter 11, so we'll be here in just a few weeks, but it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is the story, that we, the historical story that we know as the Tower of Babel. When humankind refused to spread out over the earth after God had told them, and so God divided their languages. And it's the birth of language as we have it in the earth today. But with that, they're in they're building what we call the Tower of Babel. And it's really, you could call it the Tower of Babylon. It's, it's the origin of this idea. And even Babel as an idea goes back even further into the time of Nimrod before the fall, before the flood. But Babylon is, in Scripture, a literal city, but it's also an idea. It's also a concept. It's a religious system. It's a, it's a, it's a commercial system of of what these guys are doing here in Genesis, which is to say, we will not do the will of God. We will gather together and celebrate the ability and the accomplishments of mankind, and we will put our trust in that. And so, as we're reading, okay, chapter 17 is very much about a judgment of the religious system of Babylon. Chapter 18 is very much a judgment about the, uh, the commercial system of Babylon. Okay, but in that, We've said throughout this book that we want to interpret Scripture as literally as possible. And so right now, we look and say there is no literal city of Babylon that's, that's thriving on the earth in anywhere close to what is described here in what we'll read tonight. So, I, I say that to say what we're going to read is a reference to a system and to an idea and to a religious principle that's being judged here. But, it could also be a literal city. And we'll get into it in a little more depth, but I, I want to just, you know, sometimes we read it and we we'll say, oh, obviously it can't be this because it doesn't make sense to my mind. Well, could be, but if the scripture says something and it appears that it might be referencing something as literal prophecy, we say, okay, maybe there's a component here that I don't fully understand. Maybe God is a hair smarter than me. And so we're going to read it and we're going to, you know, declare it as truth, but also we're going to have a little bit of humility as we go through to say, okay. You know, there's some spots, we've talked about this. There's, there's times in prophecy when you say, This is what we know. And there's times when you say, We are really pretty darn sure that this is what we're talking about. And then there's times when you say, This might be a little speculative. Okay? And so tonight we'll have a little bit of all three. But all that brings us up to chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her I marveled with great amazement. So John is given a vision of Babylon. And this is, it's it's imagery, okay? He sees a woman riding a beast. And so what we're going to see as we get into this is basically the woman is Babylon. And we're told that because she has a name, which is mystery, Babylon the Great. So the woman that John is seeing in this vision is Babylon, and specifically the religious concept of Babylon. And she's riding a beast that's full of names of blasphemy who has seven heads and ten horns. Who is that? We read about it a couple weeks ago. That's the Antichrist. Okay? So we have a religious system riding the Antichrist, and the religious system has a couple defining elements to it. The, this harlot, this woman, has some defining components. And that is that she sits on many waters. The inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Her sins are, are making the earth drunk. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet and gold and precious stones and pearls. So there's, there's massive wealth associated with this system. She has in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So her her luxury drink is sin. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. So it's a religious system that is marked by wealth, by power, by corruption, by immorality, and by persecution of true believers. It's quite a system. And John sees it and he says, I marveled with great amazement. Verse 7, we're going to read verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter and then we'll go back and sort of carve it out. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads... Are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other one has not yet come. And when he comes he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Who have received no kingdom as of yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind. And they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. And then He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Is there really any confusion? Like, can we just. All right, so here we go. So John is like, wow, this is kind of intense. And the angel says, what? What's your hang up? I'll tell you what the mystery is. And so we said, awesome, thank you. So he says, okay. The beast which you saw was and is not will send out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. The beast that the woman is riding is the Antichrist, and in verse nine he says the seven heads are seven mountains. Now, so if the woman is riding, if the religious system is riding the Antichrist, she's riding a beast with seven heads and ten horns, and so he says you have seven heads that are seven mountains. Now, historically, if you're talking about Babylon, and you and you understand like the idea of a city, and you're gonna say what's a great city that's on seven mountains, the answer would be Rome. Rome is the city on seven hills, okay? That, that's been sort of one of the defining elements of Roman geography for a very long, really since its founding. It's understood in general, when you see a reference to seven hills in a city, you're talking about Rome. So, that's where we look at this and say, okay, this is, in chapter 17 at least, Babylon is in a religious concept, a religious idea of the Babylonian religious system. Maybe not, in chapter 17 at least, a literal city of Babylon, So she's riding a beast that's, in some form or another, a Roman Empire. And this is consistent with Daniel, um, where uh, in Daniel 9, he says, The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city of Jerusalem. Daniel prophesies that those who destroy the temple, which was the Roman army in 70 A.D., will also be the army of the Antichrist. And so there's always been an understanding in biblical prophecy that the the final kingdom of the world will be some sort of Roman Empire. But to what form and to what capacity? We're really not positive, okay? But there's seven heads and seven mountains. And he says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So there's ten kings or ten leaders who come to power briefly under the reign of the Antichrist, They help bring them into power for a very brief time. They're going to think that they're helping initiate world peace. They're going to think they're helping getting world power, but they are going to be part of the Antichrist plan. And it says they will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. And then he says, the ten horns, verse 16, which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And so what you have, and you can sort of put the pieces all together, okay, You have the harlot riding the beast. And we're told specifically with the beast, his seven heads represent seven hills or seven mountains. So there's an idea of the harlot is riding the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. And there's ten horns, which are ten kings. There's some sort of global alliance with this form of a revived Roman Empire that will join forces. And the woman will ride the beast. The woman will be in alliance, will rise to power on the back of the beast, And then he says the ten horns, or the ten kings, will devour the woman. So somehow or other, there's going to be a political-religious alliance that comes into the world to establish a one-world government. Okay, And it's going to be the combination, the coalition of the woman and the beast. And these ten horns, these ten kings, will put up with it. They will put up with the idea of a religious system helping give them power up until the time that they don't put up with it. And so there will be a point in time in the world where we've got this massive one world government, one world religion, and everything is supposed to be bringing us into utopia, quote unquote. And then there'll be a point in time at which the power of the earth says, you know what, the religion of the earth is not, is not going to happen. We are not going to tolerate this. And most people would at least speculate that that's probably at the midpoint of the Great Tribulation. When what Jesus and Daniel refer to as the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist will go into the temple and declare himself to be God, and basically he 'll break the religious side of the covenant okay, and so that 's what we have we have the destruction of the religious Babylonian system, and people always are trying to figure out what it is and what is this and and truthfully, this is where you want to be careful to not delve too far into into speculation, okay, but as you look at it and as you look at bible prophecy and sort of What are religious systems and ideas throughout the world? When he describes the woman, what he describes, I believe, very closely is something very akin to what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. And when I say that, you've got to be really careful to qualify that very quickly or else people will freak out. But you need to understand that there's a very strong difference between Catholics and the Roman Catholic Church. Because you know, if you were to define what's a Catholic, a lot of us would think of as people like, oh, Mother Teresa. People who have marked their lives by a devotion to serving people and proclaiming the love of Jesus Christ. But if you were to say, well, what's the Catholic Church? Could you sum it up for me in a couple words? What word you, would you use? Money, power, pedophiles, political ambition, power brokering, there's a, there's a Catholic system that is very distinct from the, I presume, millions of Catholics who legitimately love Jesus Christ, okay? And so understand, this is where I will freely admit that this, is, this would fall into the category of speculation, okay? But as you, as you look at prophecy and try to understand what is, what is happening collectively, and as we try and see it in our world today, understand just sort of the narrative of what happens as we're building up to this point. You're going to have all the Christians who believe in Jesus Christ raptured. Every Protestant and every Catholic who believes that Jesus Christ is the way to salvation is going to be taken out. At that point, there really won't be a Protestant church left, just because the Protestant church is too individualized. There will still be a Roman Catholic church if every Catholic who believes in Jesus Christ is gone. The system is still in place. Okay? So if you remove every believer who believes in Jesus Christ... Well, then you have Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we talked about a couple months ago, where you're going to have more or less the destruction of radical Islam in the world. And so what you'll be left with globally at that point is a very liberal brand of Christianity, a very liberal brand of Islam. The vast majority of Judaism today is very liberal theologically. And so it's very, very conceivable that you could have a power structure that comes into play and say, you know what, let's create a one-world religious system. We all basically believe in the same God. We just call him different names. We have different holy books, but it's all basically the same holiday. And you could have a structure come into play where a, a warped version of the Catholic Church creates a political alliance. We've seen this, truthfully, throughout the history of the Catholic Church. Okay, But as we read the description of the woman, it says she's sitting on many waters and, and the angel explains to him that that's over all nations. The Catholic Church has ambassadors really in more countries than probably any other actual nation has. Uh, she's clothed in all kinds of riches. The Catholic Church is very rich and very powerful. She is, has a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. It's a sad reality that the Catholic Church particularly in this day and age, but really for a large chunk of its history, has been marked by massive scandals and massive abuses of the people entrusted to its care. And then he says that the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And this is where, again, you make a delineation between Catholic individuals who believe in Jesus Christ and a Catholic system. But the Roman Catholic Church is responsible for the deaths of numerous, countless Christians, who wanted to follow Jesus Christ, the greatest opposition to getting our Bible in English so that we can read it tonight was the Catholic Church. Okay, people, people were killed so that we could read this book and not have to go listen to some priest read it in Latin and translate it for us. Okay, So there's a Catholic system, and, and that's where I say, yes, it is speculation, but it is also very interesting. If there's a revived Roman Empire, we still call it the Roman Catholic Church. And, and there's a very good train of logic to say, at least potentially, that the Roman Empire in some ways never actually died. It just morphed into a religious empire. And, and even you know a lot of the Catholic tradition is pulled out of Roman paganism. A lot of the holidays are very closely tied. And so what we're seeing is a religious idea that at the very least is tied very closely to Rome, to a revived Roman Empire. And so I just say that not because it's just fun speculation, but because as we look at our world, we want to live with an awareness of, oh, Jesus could come back right now. We don't want to live with this idea of, uh, you know what, that hasn't happened yet. He can't, you know, he's still got some boxes to check. He's not coming back today. He could come back right now. The, the political systems are in place. The religious systems are in place. Everything is situated for Jesus Christ to come back at any moment. And so there will be a religious political coalition that comes together on the backs of the Antichrist and this religious system, and then the ten kings will devour the religious system. The religious system will be crushed, and the political system will try to sustain. And then chapter 18, we read about another destruction of Babylon, the destruction of a commercial Babylon. He says, and we'll read it, it's, it's kind of big chunks, so we'll do it in big chunks. He says, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority... And the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich merchants through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people! Lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine and she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. This is the judgment of the of commercial system. Of really the world's love of money. The world's love of money and power and well, you know what, we'll just create a cheap product, we'll sell it to them, we'll rip off the little guy. It's interesting, we, we sometimes worry, is the judgment of God too harsh? I think sometimes we forget the number of injustices that just happen to the point that we just we just, almost, we just expect it, right? You, you buy something online and you kind of halfway expect it to be trash when you get it, right? You just kind of know like, yeah, it's a lame product, but you know what, I got the cheap version. I guess I'll just, I'll try it and see what happens, right? Why? Because we're used to getting ripped off because <laughs> the world, there's a world system that has figured out, hey, you know what? We can manufacture this in Southeast Asia. We can rip off the manufacturers. We can rip off the guys who are making it. We can rip off the guys who are shipping it. We can rip off the guys who are buying it. And then when we're done, we can just dump it in the ocean. And we don't care. We'll make money on every end of this bargain. And we just kind of live with it. Because what are we going to do, right? You can't fight the man and win. You can still try, by the way. It's a lot of fun. But, but you know, like it's a big system out there. And the Lord understands this. The Lord remembers every single one of those. And when the Lord judges, we said this over and over again, the Lord never in the book of Revelation hits a point where he loses self-control. John, when he, when he, when he hears the declaration that, you know, that the Lord is coming to judge the earth, they say, hey, look, the line of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And then John looks and he says, I saw a lamb. And, and throughout the book of Revelation, it's the judgment of the lamb. Jesus, when he's judging the earth for its sins, never slips out of being a lamb. He he manages to retain his identity as a lamb, even in his wrath. He never has to kick it into lion mode, okay? But he is just. And and he is aware of every slight and every perversion and every hurt and every uh, injustice that has been endured by his people. And he is going to deal with it. And then notice also, he says, come out of her, my people. You know, there's gonna be a massive persecution of Christians in the Great Tribulation. And and there's an idea, and even in that, what's gonna happen? Jesus said in Matthew 24, when the abomination and desolation happens, when the Antichrist basically turns on the religious system, he said, flee to the mountains. And it is interesting. If this is a, a destruction of a literal city, the persecution of Christians will serve to get them all out of the boundaries of the city limits before whatever happens here happens. And, and sometimes the the what we take as, oh, God's being unfair, is actually, no, God is getting his people out. He's making sure that everybody's outside the limits that needs to be outside. And so he says, all right, come out, for our sins have reached heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. A lot of this, it's interesting, in Jeremiah 50 and 51, there's a prophecy about a destruction of Babylon that has never been fulfilled. And it appears to be about a literal city. And that's where we say, okay, we don't fully understand what's going on here in this chapter in some ways, and that's okay. Because we do understand what this chapter is all about, which is what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about the destruction of commercial Babylon, and is that a literal city or not? You know what? I don't know. I know it's about the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that's okay. We do know, uh, you know, elsewhere in Revelation, sometimes a city is identified by another name. Uh, Jesus talks about the two witnesses in Jerusalem. He says they're, they're killed in Sodom, in the city where our Lord was crucified. So he's referencing Jerusalem, but he identifies it by the name of its the city that's most closely associated with its morality. So this could be a literal Babylon is rebuilt and destroyed. This could be uh, either Rome or some other city is established as a world center and is then identified as Babylon and destroyed. We're truthfully not sure, and truthfully okay either way. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. The world system of selling things is, is gone in this moment. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The Lord is just, and he will not let the abuse of human beings go unpunished. He will deal with it. Verse 14, The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city was clothed in fine linen purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate." Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So he's he's hearing the destruction right out. And then he says, in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you have. There are some things that it won't do you a thing for. Money is worthless. Money can only make you more of what you already are. And, And so money can't really do anything for you. And, and, and the world obsesses over, can we get a little more, and a little more, and a little more, and, and, and you can build your whole life around it, and what happens in one hour, it can all go to nothing. I was reading a thing this week, right now there's this subtle little legal shift in the way that stocks are bought in the United States, you may not know this, but if you buy 10 shares of Google, and there's a massive financial meltdown, you don't own 10 shares of Google. You own the right to have 10 shares of Google if somebody else in line doesn't take it. And specifically, big corporations have got this nice little legal code written out where if there's a crash, they are entitled to go to the front of the line and take all their shares first. So for whatever it's worth, it is possible, just not to like freak you all out, but it's possible. There's a financial meltdown in the United States. All of our assets that we might have in stocks or in the stock market, oh, they'll still be there. Well, somebody else will take them. So uh, if you're putting your money and getting your, your IRA up or that's your hope in life, it's not super stable. Just you better be trusting in Jesus Christ because I'm not saying don't invest money. I'm just saying know that in one hour, all that money could come to nothing. And, and the angel says rejoice over this. The world, the merchants of the world are weeping and lamenting. All of our profits are gone. Nobody can let us, we can't buy and sell all these things, including bodies and souls of men. And the angels say, you know, just look at the, the disconnect. The men of the earth say, oh, we're ruined. And the angels in heaven say, "Ah, oh, praise the Lord. This has finally been dealt with. We have watched this injustice for 6,000 years, and it's finally being addressed. Praise the Lord. So verse 21 then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. But your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Sorcery, incidentally, is the word pharmacia, So you could say by all your drugs, the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. So in a sense, the angel just grabs a rock and throws it in the water and is like, that's what I'm talking about. We have dealt, the Lord has dealt with the world system. And people will no longer be able to rip people off. The Lord takes justice pretty seriously, evidently. And when we watch Jesus Christ reveal, which is what this book is all about, we realize, you know, we love little Jesus, meek and mild, but never forget Jesus, you know, Jesus on earth, he always, you know, this is one guy said, he said he always acted remarkably like a god. He could be very gentle, but he also had no qualms about flipping over tables in the temple and fashioning a whip out of cords and driving people out. And you know, suddenly forget that, right? The Lord, his strength is proportionate to his gentleness, and they, they exist in equal capacity with him, and so the gentleness of the Lord is an immense comfort, but so is the justice of the Lord, to realize he will not let injustice stand, and we are going to go for chapters 19 and 20. I was thinking about it all week and praying about it, and I think we're going to do it, because... Ending on a massive city's destruction is not nearly as fun as ending on a new heaven and a new earth. So here we go. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So Babylon is destroyed, the religious system, the, the, uh, the sort of the social system, the commercial system, and quite possibly the literal city. And what happens in heaven? We all start praising the Lord. We say true and righteous are your judgments. That's important to remember. In the book of Revelation, we read these, and and sometimes we're like, "Wow, this feels really harsh." And we understand that when we are up there and we watch it, we're going to say, "Wow, that was so righteous. That was so true. That was like, that was so good." You know, if I, you know, we'll say like, you know, like, "Wow, Lord, if I had all your power and all your insight and all your discernment and everything else that you have that I don't have, I would have done the exact same thing." Like. It's not that the Lord needs our affirmation, but we will have, we will be given the ability to understand, oh, this is right. So verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her It was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John hears the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings saying hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. It's okay when we worship the Lord if it's a little bit loud. That's not a call to willfully draw attention to yourself, but it is okay to praise the Lord enthusiastically because it's what we get to do in heaven. It doesn't say, and then I heard the voice of a lot of quiet mumblings and people kind of singing down on their chest. It's okay to belt it out just for what it's worth and they're calling, they say, blessed is this time for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus refers to himself as uh, the bridegroom, and he refers to the church as his bride, and he's saying, okay, here it comes. Here comes the union of Jesus Christ and the church together. Verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who do you think this is? This is Jesus Christ right here, sitting on a white horse. I'm going to go on a limb and say Jesus looks pretty phenomenal right here when we get to see this. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So we're all coming together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is the bride of Christ, that's the church, and Christ. So we are all going to look probably pretty okay ourselves on our white horses. But he's going to be at the front, and all the focus is going to be on him. Out of his mouth, verse 15, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is what happens when when the Battle of Armageddon forms. We talked about it last week. All the kings of the earth, the final armies, are coming together, and they say, we are going to fight against the Lord. And this is the time, basically, they challenge and defy the Lord, and the Lord comes down to meet the challenge. And this is what's prophesied in Psalm 2. It's really what the whole psalm is about. He says, why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And he says, verse 6, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2 is all about this battle right here where the kings of the earth come together and say, we will defy God. We will defeat God. And God laughs at their arrogance and says, I'll send my king. I'll send the king down. He says, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. I've given you all the nations of the earth as an inheritance. Satan offered Jesus all the nations of the earth. Jesus defied him. And now God says, they're all yours. And he's going to come down. And he's going to bring the armies with him for the, for the marriage, the union of the church and Jesus Christ. And he says, "He's out of his mouth was a sharp sword. He will judge the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We say that phrase a lot, but think about it for a second in the context of what that will mean right there. All the kings of the earth are gonna be there. Right? All the lords of the earth are gonna be there. They're all like the greatest collection of power and might that is ever assembled in world history is gonna be in that valley defying the Lord. And he'll come down and his, his name, just what he's known by, is the God who is on top of all of that, king of all of them. They are his subjects, right? He does not, he can laugh at their plans because their plans are so inferior to his power. Verse 17, And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So this is, again, we read about this over the last few weeks. There's, it's been referenced a couple times through the book of Revelation. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped him. These two that's the Antichrist and his sidekick, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is, we've been talking about this, this is what's known as the battle of Armageddon and really it's the non-battle of Armageddon because the Lord judges them right there. The Lord does not have to exert himself. right? It's not a close shave. He doesn't need a, a major military strategy. He, he says, a sword goes out of his mouth and destroys them all. Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So, Jesus comes down. The armies are destroyed. The beast and the prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is chained for a 1,000 years. And now Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth for 1,000 years. This is what's known as the millennial kingdom. And this is where some people read this and they say, obviously this is metaphorical. Some people read this and say, you know, maybe this is just an idea or a concept. Truth be told, I like to read scripture as literally as possible. Whenever possible, so the Word of God prophesies and says Jesus will reign for a thousand years on earth. I look at it and maybe it's overly simplistic, but I say, you know, I bet that means I bet that means Jesus is going to reign on earth for a thousand years. So verse four, he says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, that's referencing judgment into hell, has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, he sees thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Who is them? Well, we know a couple things here. We know that Christ is coming together for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which would include the church, and that the church comes down with him there. We know that there's a specific reference to those who have been beheaded. Uh, beheaded is, it could also be translated executed. It's more of a broad term. It's not necessarily exclusively beheading. Um, but that, in a sense, is broadly an encouragement to anybody who's going to get martyred for Christ. Say, hey, you will be given the opportunity to have it to receive a role as a judge in the millennial kingdom. And it also includes us, because in First Corinthians chapter six, Paul is writing, and he says, Hey, he's writing to the church, and he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Paul says it so, you know, matter of, duh, we're gonna be judging angels. And we say, oh, yeah, uh, I didn't know that, but that's, that's cool. And so what I, you know, if we interpret Scripture as literally as possible, what's happening here? Jesus is coming back with the church and with all those, including all those who have been martyred, and they're going to rule and reign with Christ for a 1,000 years. And what we really have here is, in essence, the opportunity to live in Eden, the opportunity to let the world be what god meant it to be satan will be bound he says there's the rest of the dead don't live again until the thousand years are finished i believe that's referencing those who are going to come and be judged at the great white throne judgment where they will be did you believe in jesus christ or not if not you are going to be damned to hell okay but for the thousand years this is what isaiah wrote tons of stuff about this okay jeremiah wrote about this ezekiel wrote about this this is in essence what the cry of every human heart has been wanting to experience, okay? From the moment we're old enough to realize that the world is messed up, we have had a longing that will be fulfilled here in this chunk. And we, and we get one nice paragraph about it, right? I mean, it's a great little paragraph. But understand, Jesus will be ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And he's going to let us be a part of that. Now, you could say, and, and people speculate, and I, and I like it's... it's the thought of the millennial kingdom just works me up. I just love anticipating what it will be like. Um, You know, how would everybody fit if it was every Christian? Well, first of all, I believe if Jesus restores the earth to its Edenic state, then if the atmospheric pressure comes back to what it probably was before the flood, you'd have places like all of Canada, all of Australia, all of Russia, all of Africa suddenly become uh, vastly good for growing food. You'd be able to feed everybody. Aside from that, just imagine, so, so if Jesus does the miraculous, which he is Jesus, so that's quite capable, you know, he, he could totally do that. Um, but aside from that, just imagine a thousand years with Jesus as the boss, right? Like, if he chose to do nothing miraculous for a thousand years and just be like a good administrator, what would the earth look like, right? If Jesus is in charge of the cleanup project of earth, Right. Like, hey, you know what guys? Um I got this idea. Why don't we not use, you know, I mean just pick your whatever your personal concern is. Like, you know, guys, I got this idea, let's not use plastic. I've actually invented this thing uh over here that I can make. We could we could use that, that'd be cool. Right? Or uh, you know, hey, uh you're planting corn. Can I propose if we're gonna um hmm you know, I you do you do whatever you want. I always like to plant my corn this way, and it grows faster. That's what I would do. Uh hey, you know what, as far as like, collecting taxes, I think it's pretty fair if we do it this way. And by the way, since I am judging the world with a rod of iron, there will be absolutely zero corruption in my government. Uh, so all taxes will be handled perfectly uh, and with absolute justice and fairness. For a thousand years, right? And oh, by the way, we already know from Isaiah, and this will be the period when the lion is laying down with the lamb. So not only is Jesus Christ reigning, but Satan is bound the, the perpetual force of evil that goes around driving us to do sinful things will be removed. Just think about that for a second. Imagine living a life without sinful impulses, right? That alone makes me excited. I can't wait to quit sinning, right? I am excited for that. I think that will be just a heck of a lot of fun. And, and we're going to get to experience that for a thousand years with Christ, And then he says, now, verse 7, When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." Okay, so sometimes this like, throws us all for a loop. Like, wait a second. It was all perfect, and then Satan got free, and all of a sudden there's this massive army coming against Christ. What's going on? Well, here's what I would say again. It's a little bit of speculation, but here's what I think we're talking about. You're going to have a remnant of people who survived all the way through the Great Tribulation. Okay, You're also, I believe, and this is where I could be wrong, but I think uh, Jesus specified that In the resurrection, and I believe he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, there's not marriage, and we're not given in marriage in the same way. I think there's a possibility that marriage and reproduction may still be a part of the millennial kingdom. In which case, after a thousand years, there will be a large number of people who have never really made a decision for Christ because they've always just kind of grown up with it. They never really thought about it. And so you don't read this and think like, oh my gosh, I'm going to live with Christ for a thousand years and then I'm just going to like walk away and go to hell. No. Christ knows who are his. He will not lose you. You will not, you know, if you if you rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, you're not going to all of a sudden just like go off the deep end. But Satan will be given basically one last opportunity to try and rally an army. And those who have just, you know, just like, and you say, well, how could anybody do it? Well, Adam and Eve did it. Right? I mean, It's sort of the whole story of our universe is that people could live in perfection and still desire to rebel against God. And so there will be one last rebellion in the world and the Lord will end that rebellion as well. And then, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, hang on to that line for a little bit, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is the great white throne judgment. That's what we call it. This is where you are judged based on really one thing. And that is, did you... Trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the answer is yes, you're in. And that includes a lot of people who we may not like, okay? A lot of people who just kind of annoy us. That includes Pentecostals, that includes Baptists, that includes, you know, just like, it even includes Methodists. It includes, you know, Episcopalians, and includes includes like just all kinds of, just frankly, you know, people who just were like, ah! includes, you know, people who wear suits to church on Sunday, and people who teach barefoot, And there's just a huge range. But if you believe Jesus Christ is the way to salvation, you're in this list. And then there is another group of people, and that is those who have said, no, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do it my way. And it says then the books are open. And there's there's an idea here of basically, okay, you didn't want to be judged on Christ's righteousness. We'll judge you on your righteousness. What is your righteousness? And we're told in, I think, Corinthians, that our righteousness is filthy rags. Next to the Lord. So anyone who has decided that they will attain righteousness on their own will be found unrighteous. And they will go into hell. And it's a sober reality of the book of Revelation. But we don't look at it and say, wow, God is unfair. Because when we see it, we're told we'll say, wow, true and righteous are your judgments. What we're going to, I think, understand is sometimes we say, wow, that's harsh. No, what it means is right now we don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand perfection to that degree. And when we see the perfection of God, I think there will be an understanding that, of course, it's impossible for sin to dwell in the presence of God. And frankly, in its own kind of odd way, this is the Lord granting these people what they want. C.S. Lewis said, at the end of time, there's really only two kinds of people. There's those who just say to the Lord, thy will be done. And then there's those to whom the Lord says, thy will be done. When people say, I do not want to spend eternity in the presence of God, the Lord will say, you do not have to. I will not force you. And so it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's just odd as we read it. I don't think we'll experience it this way in the moment, but as we read it, it's this odd blend of, like, massive joy, but also just a very, a very painful reality. But he says here, and this is where I want us to kind of wrap up for the night. He says, heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. Because... There's a great white throne set up. The presence of God is so big that there's not room for heaven and earth to exist anymore. He just, it, it's so, the presence of God is so expansive and overwhelming that the old, you know, we, you know sin can't dwell in the presence of God. The earth itself is, is even after a thousand years of being with Christ, there's, there's enough brokenness there that it can't be in the presence of God. And so verse, chapter 21 Verse 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They got old and died. Our, our, our world, we should be good stewards of it. We should take care of it. We should be responsible, but it is going to die. And in, in this chunk, those who have refused to accept Christ are cast away. The earth itself is cast away. And then I love, he says, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Death gets killed. Death dies at the end of this chunk. And all that's left is eternal life with Christ. That's what we get. That's what we get the privilege and an experience, to experience. And you think about, I love the idea, you know, when, they, when the Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they have a thing where they say, you know, if he had just taken us out of Egypt, it would have been enough. And if he would have just split open the sea for us, it would have been enough. And if he would have just done this, if he would have just given us manna, that would have been enough. You know, all these things that we did not deserve one more thing and yet God kept giving it to us. And I think for us, you know, sometimes we say, well, you know what? If he had just saved us on this earth, that would have been enough. If he would just offer us hope of a future life, that would have been enough. If he would have just given us a thousand years to reign with him, that would have been enough. But it's not all he gave us. We will have eternity to unpack all that he has given us. And, and and you can't wrap your it's it's too big of a concept. Your brain is not capable right now of understanding eternity. But he offers it to us. And says you can have life with me for eternity. Or you can have death apart from me forever. But we have the opportunity of life. We have life. We have this life, but we have the second life, the real life. The new heaven and the new earth are coming. And these are what we're living in right now is just the, it's a shadow. It's an idea. It's kind of a, it's a picture, but it's not the real thing, right? The real thing is coming. We're going to step out of the picture and out of the frame and into reality someday to spend eternity with Jesus Christ, and it's going to be amazing. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, for the promise and the hope that we have of eternal life Lord, we want to hang on to that. We want to be people who are excited about getting to see you when you come. We can't wait. We pray that as we wait, though, that you would give us a call and a mission and a drive to live our lives with purpose, that we would go out not to do our thing but to live as ambassadors. We We are not citizens of the United States. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost and above all else. We don't have a president, we have a king. He's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and, and he is the one we want to serve and live for. So Lord, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for the, the work that he did on the cross so that we can have all these incredible promises. Thank you for the, the empty grave that reminds us that life is coming for us in an amazing way. And we pray that you would send us out, filled up with your Holy Spirit and equipped by your word to reach out to a lost and dying world, to invite them all to come to that marriage supper of the Lamb so that they too can join in the fellowship, join in the worship, and join in the life that you have for us. And we ask all these things, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.